Welcome to the Real Change series on the Meta Hour with Sharon Salzberg. Inspired by Sharon's newest book, Real Change, this series features conversations with activists, artists, and teachers, all discussing the intersection of meditation and social action. To learn more, visit realchangebook.com. Hi, I'm Sharon Salzberg, and I'm speaking today with my longtime friend and colleague, Sylvia Borstein, PhD. Look at that, Dr. Sylvia Borstein, for the Real Change podcast series. Sylvia has been teaching Dharma and mindfulness meditation since 1985. She's a founding teacher of Spirit Rock Meditation Center, a psychotherapist, wife, mother, and grandmother. She's the author of five books, including It's Easier Than You Think. Buddhist Way to Happiness, and Happiness is an Inside Job, Practicing for a Joyful Life. Sylvia's teaching emphasizes daily life as mindfulness practice and including informed citizenship and social activism as integral to spiritual maturation. For many years, we co-taught together at the Garrison Institute, and I'm delighted to welcome Sylvia to the Meta Hour. Hi, Sylvia. Hello, Sharon, dear. I'm so glad to be here. I'm so glad to see you. We can actually see each other, which is unusual for a podcast. (laughs) And you are recording remotely from your home in Northern California, right? I am. I am. I kind of liked as I got used to it because uh, not only with myself, but I like being in other people's houses. Uh, especially news anchors and you see how their house, nice to know what Chris Cuomo's house looks like and other (laughs) people's house looks like. (laughs) Well, there's there's some uh, Twitter account called Room Raider, which is raiding people's Zoom account ambiance, (laughs) the environment. And so it's like very funny, you know, like, oh, lovely bookshelf. You get an eight out of 10 or whatever. The bookshelf, yeah. I mean, every time I'm here and I look up, I think, oh, I should adjust the books so they're not leaning over one way or another. Anyway, no, this is this is my home in Northern California, where we are back again on altogether lockdown. And uh, you are. Well, yeah, I, I think maybe next to the highest. They didn't say stay at home, but they did say don't go in anywhere. And uh, uh so we're back. I think we're back to stage two, and um, this is a very serious virus. And uh, I, I was talking to somebody this morning about how, when people say, "Well, it was uh, before or after the birth of Jesus, or before or after the Norman Conquest," they're going to say before and after the pandemic of 2020. Mm-hmm. The world is going to be so much different afterwards. And one of the things that I've been teaching. In the last couple of months since this pandemic has started, always giving credit to you, dear. I say, my friend Sharon Salzberg is teaching these days, and she's saying, what is still true? I love that, because in the middle of everything, it is still true that everything is impermanent. It's still true that dukkha is inevitable in this life because things arise and pass away. And it's still true What was my third that's still true? That everything is contingent on everything else. Uh That there's nothing that, it's all contingency. And uh, which does not mean sitting back and saying, it's all out of my hands. 
because the truth is it's in everybody's hands. So there's no taking a break from it at all. There's no time off from one of our friends used to talk about there's no time off from being a Bodhisattva. Mm. Somebody's story, not mine. <laughs> Maybe you know. I don't, but you're talking about um, the three characteristics of, of impermanent suffering and non-self, really, because another way of seeing non-self from the Buddhist perspective is contingency or interdependence. It's like the other face of it. Yeah. It really, once you see that, um, that, that leads into one of my core understandings of uh, why it's, why I find it now that I'm so clear about that. Mostly I'm pretty good about not blaming people for what they do, because I think to myself, given what happened to them, they couldn't do otherwise. So it's not, I don't have to personalize every kind of behavior that's, um, that rings negatively with me, even in myself when I do something and it's not what I wanted to do. It's not my finest hour. Uh, I think to myself, wow, I, you know, at that moment, I couldn't have done differently. Yeah, Maya Angelou said, it, this is not a, an exact quotation, but she said something like, when I know better, I do better. Yeah, yeah. That's the same thing. Somebody in a class of mine once said, when someone says to me, how are you, Gwen? I never say, uh, I never say I'm fine. I always say, I couldn't be better. And then she would pause for a while, and then she'd say, because I couldn't. Nobody can ever be better. And people say, when they hear it the first time, they say, what do you mean? Blah, blah, blah. But we couldn't be worse either. How we are is the only way we can be, giving every condition, inner and outer, now and forever. And it's a tremendous relief not to have to take everything personally. And we can also change the conditions, so we're not stuck, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's great. Um, I was trying to remember when we first met. I mean, you were in California. I think you were interested in loving-kindness practice, or did we meet before then, before that visit? No, we didn't really. I don't know how that happened, because I began in 1977, uh, and I went on a retreat where Jack Cornfield and uh, uh, two other people, now not teaching, uh, were teaching. And I met Jack there. And uh, I began to go really seriously on retreats near and far. But I met you in 1985, I think. And I met you because, well, it was one year after you went to study loving kindness with Upandita. Was that 85? I went in 85 uh, and I came back um, that summer and began teaching or maybe fall and began teaching in 85. So I I began teaching loving kindness. So then I may have come late 85 or 86. But at that point, uh, at that, it was at a point in my own practice where I was very devout about practicing. And uh, very excited about the potential of it. And uh, without going into the whole story, uh, my mind had and body had fallen into an unusual state of alteredness. And uh, when you start to have altered experiences meditating, often people think, aha, this is a sign that you're surely enlightened. If 
odd things happen to you. And I think it's not. I have some friends who slowly and quietly and unhysterically got wiser and wiser <laughs> without a lot of confusing body um, uh, experiences or mind experiences. The easy way to say that, or a straightforward way to say that, is that a lot of kundalini energies that were causing me to do well, so-called kundalini energy because caused me to do weird things with my body, even though I didn't plan to move. Anyway, somebody said, you should go to see Sharon. She's got this new thing that she teaches. And I went because I was uncomfortable. I loved the Dharma. I loved the promise of the Dharma. I love the idea that peace in, our, in this body, in this mind, in this life was a possibility. And I was having a hard time staying really um, uh, attentive to what was arising because it was manifesting. What was manifesting in me was all kinds of agitated energies. So if I were to say it now, I would say, I wish my teachers would have known to say, these things that you have are agitated energies. They're not bad. They're not good. It's not a sign you're enlightened, but you're, it is a good sign that something is happening. So go to see Sharon. She'll be able to fix you up. So I went to Barry, and I'm so fond of telling the story when I do, because I say there was not a loving kindness retreat. It was a mindfulness retreat. But you said to me, you'll sit in the hall with other people. They don't know what you're doing. It's really true when you sit in a hall with 90, 100 something people sitting there quietly, you have no idea what they're doing. Even if they're sleeping, you don't know. <laughs> so I went to Barry and we had, I think, two weeks together. And every day I saw you and you said, do this, do this, do this, do this, do this. And I did. And I felt immediately better. And so it's really a conversion experience. And uh, and the rest, as they say, is the history of consolidating that and understanding it and carrying it on. And um, and I, you, the part of when you were introducing me and you said the, the very important line uh, is, uh, Sylvia is very interested in mindfulness practice as part of, of a regular life. And... Um, that seems to me um, my ongoing awareness. At the end of retreats for years and years, it became customary to have a talk the end of the, on the last day to tell people how they could take this practice with them into everyday life. And the talk was usually sit every day, meditate every day, read spiritual books, have spiritual friends. Uh, which is fine, wonderful, terrific. I don't think that's not right. I wanted, and I am now saying more, there isn't any time in the day when you cannot be practicing mindfulness. When you arrive into a gas station and you can't get the nozzle unscrewed and you feel alarmed and somebody behind you and comes and helps you out and you feel better and the alarm in your body gets better and your goodwill towards this person manifest and with it you think people are so nice and then everybody in the world looks nicer to you and you get the immediate experience of knowing that goodwill is the most comforting mind state that we could possibly have you learn that in the gas station as well as sitting on your 
pillow, maybe better than. So I, I really think the whole, not the whole, but um, important transition for me over the years is not to say, how do you put practice into daily life, but how to see daily life as a continuing, as a continual practice. Every minute mm-hmm. there's a gas station <laughs> or a sudden downpour and you don't have an umbrella or the, uh, the, the essay that people promised they'd send is not in your email or the, or, or, or something, or there's a pandemic. Well, there's a pandemic, which also reminds me, um, there are two things. Uh, one is that, and some of the many times we've talked together, which were always so uh, amazing and delightful, you've described yourself as a recovering catastrophizer. Yes. <laughs> and as a personal friend, you've also said to me that when it's a real situation of duress, that you can be like a rock, you know, you're okay. Yeah. That it, it's more the kind of speculation. Do you think that's what you're facing now in the pandemic? Uh, you know what? Uh, in the I have to think about it because I think it's two questions. That 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 awareness at the time that when there's actually something alarming, I just do it. And the fact that when I'm not under a tremendous amount, uh, it's not really. Uh, a, a right now alarm. Uh, all that that worry. Uh oh, this might happen. That might happen. That might happen. That might happen. That's uh, an exit. It's a not enough focus of the mind. There's enough room in the mind for the mind to do its habit of speculating and editorializing. <laughs> People who are professional catastrophizers. <laughs> As I am, and professional uh, fretters, that's a really another good word. Uh, they just elaborate experience. It could be this, it could be this, it could be this. But when there's an actual thing, it's not all that. The mind is absolutely focused. It is this. Now do it. And the mind, and the, what I learned from that is that when it is this and the mind, the attention focuses, you know what to do and you do it. Which was a it was a long time coming that awareness, but I did. But you know what? I on that subject of a veteran catastrophizer, uh, people often ask me when I'm teaching a group that doesn't know me very well, or I've just met them and I'm explaining about the various kinds of um, uh, unstabling mind energies that can arise. Uh, I say, how many people here are ha, think of themselves as veteran warriors that they worry and fret a lot? And I think it's actually the category with the most. Everybody raises lots of people, uh, much more than who gets angry at anything or who gets lustful, who gets worried, gets the most people raising hands. And I tell them, well, here's good news. Uh, I am a recovering fretter. That does not mean that given an opportunity, there's, is, there's some possibly provocative thing that happens. Uh, you're in an airport and the, the public address system suddenly says, ladies and gentlemen, can I have your attention, please? And your mind thinks to yourself, ah, the plane I'm waiting for for my person to arrive has just crashed. <laughs> 
notwithstanding that they say, ladies and gentlemen, may I have your attention, please, every 60 seconds, may, may I have your attention, please, pe please keep your luggage in view. They always say the same thing. But in that three seconds in between, they say that, ladies and gentlemen, I have your attention, ah, and I have some thought. And the difference between me now and 10 or 20 or 30 years ago is I have a thought and nothing happens to my nervous system. I have a thought and I think to myself, far out, look at that. That, that pattern of make a worry is still there. It's written into my neurology, but I don't believe it. That's the difference between how I am now and how I am then. I've been telling people your brain comes with cookie cutters in it, some round, some square, some diamond shape, and you don't change the cookie cutters. You can. If you have a diamond shaped cookie cutter, it's not going to cut out stars no matter how much you cut. But you can say, that's a diamond shaped cookie cutter. That's not what's happening. <laughs> I remember once you and I were teaching together at Spirit Rock and um, there is that little teacher office where teachers can be on the phone or answer emails or something that's quite near the meditation hall. And we had a colleague who was not teaching with us, but who had been visiting kind of regularly. And you and I were sitting in that little office. So I was about to go into the meditation hall to lead a sitting. And that colleague's wife called and said, have you seen my husband? And um, I can only hear your side of the conversation. And you said, no, you know, he hasn't been around. And, and she apparently said something like, well, he was supposed to call me at noon and he didn't call. And, and you hung up and I asked what that was about. And without missing a beat, you said to me, well, he must be dead. <laughs> you know, he must be lying in a ditch, icy cold on the side of the road. And I said, oh, of course, you know. And then I went in, led the sitting. And I, I left, you know, 45 minutes later. And I ran into you and I said, well, whatever happened to so-and-so? And you said, he forgot to call his wife. You know, like it's so obvious. Yeah, that's called ravine consciousness. They're definitely in a, <laughs> definitely in a ravine somewhere. You don't have the same kind of mind, though. You know? No, I was hoping you would go through a further extension of all the possibilities, you know, because <laughs> I don't get very angry all the time and it's not lustful, but I do get sort of sleepy, you know, which is another of those options, I think, oh, I think I'll just take a nap, you know, and oh, turn it all it. off. And... <laughs> That's a more benign. Do you, would you change for any other one? No, it's kind of restful. <laughs> <laughs> no, I don't think I would. I mean, I... That's not to say I never feel restlessness, you know, or any of the other. Uh, these are the five hindrances and classical Buddhist teaching of um, desire or attachment, um, aversion, which is anger or fear, sleepiness, restlessness, or doubt. And uh, actually, maybe, Sylvia, you could tell your story about uh, your friend or student who had gone was going to work one day and found her car was a little lower to the ground and how she responded because it's a perfect expression of each of these five you want to do it no why don't you do it <laughs> this is actually it's it's a story that happened so long ago but honestly true um i i have been for 
maybe 25 years now, 23, 24. However soon the Spirit Rock had buildings on the ground, we had a Wednesday morning class. And people came pre, uh, pre uh, online classes. People came every Wednesday and people were regular parishioners, so to speak, uh, who came who could, were within driving distance. And so they got to know each other because they came every week. It's like being in a church community, you know, you know each other. And after we, we meet and I teach a little bit and people would sit for a half hour and then we talk about the sitting and then I, to give some sort of Dharma talk. And often there was time for people to share a little bit personally how they were. And somebody said, you cannot believe what a bad time I had yesterday morning. I came down from my apartment and I went out of the apartment building and there was my car sitting on the hubcaps. Someone had come in the night and stolen the tires, uh, sitting on the rims. And she said, I got so mad. Uh, no, 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 wrong, wrong, erase that. Now, she said, I looked at the um, tires and I got so upset. I went two blocks away where there's a um, um, Nordstrom's. I walked to the Nordstrom's two blocks away in the shopping center and I bought the silk pajamas that I had been coveting for some weeks before. And everybody laughs, you know, you have a, an experience like this and you say, ah, that's it. I'm going to buy the, I need to soothe myself without maybe thinking that exact words. I went immediately to Nordstrom's, bought the pajamas, came home, and then I called my work and I called the tow truck, et cetera, et cetera. She tells the class, the class, somebody else says, I can't believe you did that. I would have gone in, found the super from the building, and I would have given her a really bad time. You know, you get a good uh, salary to mind the safety of the building and the people. And we should have more safety things in place. And maybe there should be a watchman outside. Would have given them a really bad time. And then I would have gone to work and given my colleagues at work a really bad time. Because, you know, if I don't feel well, they might as well know about it also. Somebody else said, you did that? I would have gone back in my apartment and said, ah, this is it. I had enough. I can't do anything else for today. I have to now take a nap, lie down, get used to it. After the nap, I'll get in gear and I'll do it. I'm calling my work. I'm saying, forget about my coming in today. I'm not coming in. Somebody else said, um, I would, you know, they said, you know me, I'm such a worrier. I would have thought today the tires, tomorrow the car, and I, it, I would have made really a big story about it, frightened myself. And somebody else, by this time they were laughing, so I'm not sure that the fifth person was genuine or just trying to fill in the blanks because she said, you know me, I would have said, it's my fault. I shouldn't have moved here. I knew better than to park and uh, to move to this neighborhood. This is not a good neighborhood. It's my fault. Next time I'll have to really figure it out better. It's always my fault. I don't figure things out in advance. So those are the five classical hindrance energies. Here's our mind potentially resting peacefully, judging each moment as it arises, making a good decision, making a good decision. And then all of a sudden something happens where the mind gets startled into a momentary confusion, 
which then manifests in one or another permutations of those energies. I always like to think, to ask people, which one do you think you have? You know, when we have people that I'm looking at, you and I are looking at, we say, put up your hands if you have this or that or that. You think you still are that kind of a type, Sharon? Yeah, I mean, it. it uh, <laughs> I do. I mean, as always, you know, it's a question of how one relates to these things and not necessarily eliminating them altogether, you know, so. Um, and, and, you know, many, many people would say, well, of course we're all a mix and we are, of course, all a mix. Uh, but I think there can be a predominant topology and uh, <laughs> matches with me being a diluted type in that other model, <laughs> you know, personality types within the Buddhist tradition. And, um, I think we decided we were both diluted types. Now, how did that happen? I don't know. I'm too deluded to say. It's hard to say. That could be, but I don't know. Um, you think you're a deluded type? I should explain that. or Yeah, you explain it, and then I'll tell you why I think I am. Yeah, so there, there are three uh, personality types in this system of Buddhist teaching in the Theravadan or Southern Buddhist schools, and they don't have very nice names, but um, they're not exactly the way they sound. And also there are purified forms and unpurified forms, which is saying that you may have a constellation of tendencies. And within that constellation, uh, there is something to treasure. It just needs to be utilized and transformed. So it's not its unpurified form. So uh, they're called the greedy or grasping type, the angry type, and the deluded type. So the greedy type doesn't mean you're a greedy person at all. Uh, it's described, for example, as the kind of person who will walk into a room and notice what they like. And they will overlook genuine faults in order to seize upon virtues. And I describe it as the kind of person who in a meeting when some problem or dilemma is presented, they'll say, it'll all work out. And you're sitting there thinking, how? How is it going to work out? Um, and again, it's, you know, the the purified form, they call faith. It doesn't mean faith in the ordinary sense. It means like a love of life. You want to come close to experience um, and, and have like a full-on experience of life. Uh, in the unpurified form, it's a problem. First, if it's, if it's a tremendous habit, because you are overlooking genuine faults and it's like a determined optimism. Um, and the angry type, again, doesn't mean you're an angry person, but you're the kind of person who would tend to walk into a room and notice what was wrong. Like, uh, you know, and, and there's a kind of courage sometimes to that. Like maybe, maybe everyone is determined not to mention the hole in the carpet and you're pointing and saying, look, there's a hole in the carpet, <laughs> but that's all you see, you know? And so it, it also, if you're locked in there, if it's a limitation, um, it gets to be a pretty unpleasant kind of life. And uh, the redeeming quality is that kind of cutting through consciousness and that courage, that ability to cut through social niceties and so on. And then the deluded type is just kind of spaced out. You know, they don't really notice anything when they come into the room. Or I should go back and say the angry type is the kind in a meeting um, who, when an opportunity is presented, will immediately say it's not going to work. 
<laughs> and the diluted type is just kind of there, you know, and not notice much of anything until someone else points it out. And uh, it's a sort of pleasant state. It's a little stuporous, but um, the disadvantage, of course, is that you're so dependent on someone else's vision of what's true or uh, their priorities because there's, there's more of a kind of hollowness or emptiness inside. and and the redeeming quality is a sort of balance or equanimity when it can be combined with noticing rather than not noticing. So, uh, and I am firmly a deluded type that has not changed in all my years. I think I, I, I come more in that category also because for instance, now in the COVID, um, we don't get in our cars or go any place now for three months. And so uh, the most I do is I go out of my house and walk around the block maybe once a day. And uh, coming up coming up the steps to my house that I've lived in for 60 years, I looked up over, the, over my house and over the rooftops of the trees that mark off the property. And I see there's a great giant house right over there, which I never saw. All these 60 years, I didn't see the house there. And I thought to myself, when did they build that house? It must have, they didn't build it from one day to the next. <laughs> must have made noise when they were constructing it. But even if it was there and they were expanding it, when did that house grow up out there? So, uh, but I tend to, I, I pass that off as saying, you know, I'm always so preoccupied with what am I thinking about? And interesting things that it's not that I'm, stuporous it's just that I'm not interested in that uh and I tend not to notice that and <laughs> often I lose my glasses and I'd be walking around the house looking all over the place and as where's the glasses which I could use my glasses I can't find my glasses and I can't I just I know I put them somewhere and my husband will say to me, your glasses are up on your head, oh, queen of mindfulness. <laughs> <laughs> Is that nice? I'm not. <laughs> that's great, a queen of mindfulness. <laughs> but that's the kind of stuff I do. I don't mind it because I'm not very picky. I have friends who come out from a, a, a restaurant where we've eaten a lovely meal who will come out and say, I say, how what? Well, that was great, wasn't it? And they say, well, it was so noisy. The music was so loud. I say, but how about the food? Wasn't the food good? Said, yeah, the food was good. But the first thing is it was too loud. You know, I, I think it's hard to be that because it kind of besmirches things before you can enjoy them. I, I, I don't want to trade in what I am, even if I don't notice houses going up. I guess we live in a time where it's also it's uh, incumbent upon all of us to notice more. You know, if we have some degree of balance, then we, I think, can notice more, you know, because we can open to more of the experience of others or, or even our own experience, see our own assumptions and, and so on. So I wanted to ask you also about your life as an activist, because I know that's very real. I know you and your daughter are involved in certain initiatives, and we've yeah. talked about voting and things in the past. 
Yeah, all of the all of the above, you know. I I I I thought to myself at some point I remember teaching that my spiritual practice, um whatever you want to say, we could have an hour-long talk on what's a spiritual practice. But my spiritual practice, if someone said, What were you doing in your um 20s or 30s as a spiritual practice? Spiritual practice at that point was I was an activist. I was the at one point, I was the chairman of the Marin Women for Peace, and I was marching down major boulevards in the county with uh, uh, Make Love Not It More and uh, War Is Not Good for Children and Other People. And uh, I was very devoted to that, and I still am. Uh, I was the Marin representative. I was a San Francisco representative in the International Women's League for Peace and Freedom. Uh, and I went to an international meeting about that. That I all did in my early 30s. Then there were a lot of years um, from when I was 40 and I uh, met my mindfulness teachers that I spent a lot of time uh, going on retreats. So I was not so much out in the street doing activism. I certainly... I'm proud to say that I have never not voted in an election since I was 21 years old. Every single, I vote for dog catcher if they have an election for it. I come from a family of uh, Eastern European refugees who came because they were so dedicated to the idea of a democracy, everybody votes. We all walked to the polls, they didn't have absentee ballots. I went with my parents and my grandparents and I stood in the voting booth with my mother and watched her vote. Those were all very, very transformative experiences for me. So I have never missed a vote. I've never missed doing things to uh, talk about what I believed in. And there were a lot of years that I wasn't so much an activist in the street kind of activist until more recently, until... Uh, until after 2000, uh, Jack Cornfield and I were arrested. That was my first arrest. Did you know we got arrested? No, tell me more. We got arrested on the, on the steps of the federal building in San Francisco in 2003, just on the eve of invading Afghanistan, protesting it. And um, it's a sweet story. There was a, a rally outside a religious meeting on the front steps of the federal building and uh, people from all the Bay Area religious traditions were there. And most people who, many people had the uh, clothing that could distinguish them. The Zen people were wearing Zen outfits. The Tibetans were wearing outfits and the uh, different Christians came with different collars and different outfits and crucifixes and there were rabbis with a talit over them. It, uh, it, it looked like a great assortment of people. Only Jack and I were wearing plain clothing. <laughs> and he said to me at one point in the morning, because people took turns making statements uh, before we sat in and before we got arrested. Uh, but during the, the service, people took turns and they, since they're all used to sermonizing and they're really dramatic in the sermonizing, 
people got out, got up, and they really you know, moved their arms and sermonized in a loud voice, like you do when you deliver a sermon. Then Jack gets up and speaks in a regular tone of voice. And I get up, and I also speak in a regular tone of voice. I have no idea what we both said, probably variations of the theme. But then we heard some other person really doing it. And Jack came over to me and said, that's we have something we have to learn, Sylvia. We haven't learned yet how to do that in that kind of a dramatic way. But then at the end of the service, we did the civil disobedience, which, of course, you have to call the papers and the, and the news media to tell them so that they'll come and cover it. Otherwise, there's no point to doing a disobedience if there isn't going to be that one. So we sat down and blocked the entrance to the federal building. Uh, Donald Rothberg was there. I was there. Jack was there. A couple of other people were there. And a lot of other people were there. And uh, uh, the marshals came up out and they said, uh, you have two minutes to disperse. If you don't disperse, we'll have to arrest you. So we didn't disperse. and. Um, they arrested us. Uh, my my grandchildren were extremely proud of me. Oh. <laughs> they were watching it on TV. Uh, the local television stations were covering it. And uh, I think it was one of my daughters who said to me, she said, I was very proud of you sitting there with Jack and you know, singing We Shall Overcome or something. And uh, since we were in the first row of people there, um, I was the first person to stand up. They said, you have to stand up and get handcuffed. She's, and my daughter said, I was watching you, Mom. She said, all the time he was sitting, I was fine. And then when you got up and I saw my little mother getting handcuffed, <laughs> I started to cry. <laughs> so we were, we were incarcerated for maybe two hours. And they took our names and our pictures. It's a great story because when they said, okay, you can go home one by one. Never heard from anybody again. They took down our data, but they didn't get in touch with anybody. Anyway, one of my friends and I, also in this group of clergy, got out right before me and waited for me. And then I got out. We went out one at a time. They took our picture and a federal marshal escorted you out. So they took her picture. They took my picture. And she said, you know, the marshal, as he escorted me out, he said to me, would you mind giving me a blessing? Oh. oh, isn't that lovely? I love that story. Here we are, we're clergy. And these guys are in the unenviable position of having to arrest clergy. And they don't like doing that. And they're people also, you know. It was a really a good moment. Yeah, that's a really great story. A good story. We have to both remember to... to tell that story sometime, especially in this time of reconsideration of police. So what's the organization you and your daughter were involved in? I know you were going to DC for a while. It was, it's the Peace Alliance and uh, they still operate and that uh, they are still, I love it when organizations do not flag in their determination uh, it was, it, it started way back, I think, with maybe even before Dennis Kucinich, but it started with an idea that we have, uh, we've had war departments and defense departments 
And why shouldn't we have a Department of Peace that really occupied itself with things that um, cultivated peace in the world, particularly initiatives like um, uh, education uh, programs for young men and women who have done uh, something that brought them to the attention of the law to help reconstruct their lives rather than incarcerate them for some period of time. Uh, I lobbied in Washington the last time I was in Washington, and that was very exciting. Um, actually going into uh, senators and representatives' offices and talking to them, uh, if they'll talk to you. I felt very, um, I felt very good about doing it. So that's like voting. It's, you know, we actually do still have the framework of a democracy. I had one other thought that just came into my mind, though, because I thought about it in terms of you think about activism. It's sometimes possible to make it sound like activism is one thing that you do and when you're out in the streets and sitting in and protesting. And that um, it's different from sitting in a, in a cloistered monastery. And I remember, I don't know, 30 years ago at least, maybe 40, reading um, uh, The Seven-Story Mountain by um, Thomas Merton and um, talking about his time in Gethsemane after he had been a monk and was really in there and having that life, that he that the civil rights movement was really in full swing. And many of his friends from his pre-movement days were honestly on the front lines and going to protests and going down south and registering voters. And he spoke to his abbot and he said, I don't feel good being here and not doing anything, just sitting and you know, meditating and praying and writing, but my friends are actually out there doing the real work. And he said, the abbot said to him, you have no idea how much good effect your being here praying is having. And I just like that so much. I, and when I tell that story to people, they'll say, well, what do you think it means? That Why do you like it? Is, do you think it means that his prayers are standing up those other people? Or do you think it means that the other people who know about his devotion to peace and his sequestering himself out of the world are buoyed up by it? Or do you think it means that his prayers are going up and coming down and helping to further the cause of good? And the truth is, I don't know any of the above, but I know that I like that story so much so that when people say, I should be out, I should be doing more, and here I am just sitting on my zafu, praying and making uh, making goodwill um, intentions for the whole world. I'm not doing anything. And I think, you know, who knows? We are at least changing our own hearts with that. That's fantastic. I'm wondering in that light, if you would consider leading us in a short meditation practice of some kind. You up for that? <laughs> Yes, of course. <laughs> I often think we should do it together and sing. No, 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 no. I'll, I'll get to meditate. That's wonderful. <laughs> All right. So here we go. Let's sing. Ready, set, go. 
Sometimes I've said to people when they say we're running out of time and you said you were gonna, we were going to have another meditation. We only have five minutes left now. I say, okay, meditate fast. But <laughs> fast but deep. Uh, fast but deep. Keeping in mind that the verb, the, the word meditate comes from means to put your attention on something purposely. That's what it means. The Latin for meditare means to purposely put your attention on something. That's really important. doesn't mean necessarily sit cross-legged. It doesn't necessarily mean anything else, but to focus your attention with an intention. So having in mind the intention to dedicate ourselves, each of us, yourself, as you think about it, to making a, dis a, dis a difference in this world, May my own mind and my own thoughts in some way contribute to the steadiness of the world consciousness, to the goodwill in the consciousness of the world, to things changing in the consciousness of the world. Let's sit, feel your body, feel your body sitting. If you can, close your eyes. Notice that the breath comes and goes on its own schedule. I mostly think that, at least for a moment, each time I sit down, because I think when that when I realize there's my breath, predictably, reassuringly, coming back for another minute or two of life, and that it does it without my even thinking about it. I have nothing to do with that. My own body conspiring with the cosmos around it is in a remarkable relationship of being breathed into life one breath after another as long as I'm alive. As soon as I think that I realize that my body relaxes a little bit. And my mind feels happier. Like, phew, here's a lovely thing that happens without my even trying. I'm granted another moment of life and another moment of life and another. See, as you relax back into this moment of just noticing with gratitude, this amazing experience of being alive in the world and therefore effective in the world, making a difference in the world, 
and appreciating that that's true. Make a wish in your own mind for yourself. Something like, may I be peaceful and happy. May I be peaceful and happy. Say that to yourself in whatever cadence you're comfortable. May I be peaceful and happy. May I be peaceful and happy. Notice what happens to your body as you wish yourself well. I'm hopeful that your body feels relaxed, that your mind is actually doing something, but it's not hard to wish yourself well. May I be peaceful and happy. Perhaps you can feel the locus of that wishing in the middle of your heart. Perhaps because your breathing feels like it initiates there around your diaphragm. May I be peaceful and happy. And imagining yourself to be something like a, uh, a radio signal broadcasting out from radio stations. Think of yourself as a blessing organism radiating out blessings from the center of your heart. In the middle of wishing yourself, may I feel peaceful and happy? You might think, may everyone in my house feel peaceful and happy. May my family feel peaceful and happy. May my neighborhood feel peaceful and happy. May my town feel peaceful and happy. If my, trans, my transformer could send out that message to the far corners of this state, this country, this globe, if the mind is not limited in space, May all mothers in this world feel peaceful and happy. May all fathers feel peaceful and happy. May all caregivers feel peaceful and happy. May all nurses feel peaceful and happy. May all medical workers 
feel peaceful and happy. You can add whoever you'd like. We'll sit for another minute. You add whoever you'd like. May all male deliverers feel peaceful and happy. May all essential workers feel peaceful and happy. May all those who support the essential workers feel peaceful and happy. May all beings everywhere feel peaceful and happy and experience the end of suffering. Thank you so much for that. That was a beautiful meditation. It's been a pleasure. Thank you very much for inviting me. Yeah, thank you for coming. And to learn more about Sylvia's work, you can visit her website at www.sylviaborstein.com. It's S-Y-L-V-I-A-B-O-O-R-S-T-E-I-N.com. Thank you all for listening. This has been the Real Change Series on the Meta Hour podcast from the Be Here Now Network. May you be safe. May you be happy, may you be healthy, and may you live with ease. Hey folks, thanks for listening. Real Change is available September 1st in hardcover, ebook, and audiobook formats. To receive a free meditation from the book, pre-order your copy today at realchangebook.com.